You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. W. Tozier once wrote, he said, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. I think there's some truth to that. A lot of people struggle, kind of like what Cheryl talked about there. A lot of times people struggle uh, when they hear the words God the Father because their concept of a father was negatively impacted through maybe neglect, abuse, or absence. I remember when I was in the United Methodist Church and I was working on my ordination and it was quite a lengthy process and there were a lot of papers that you had to submit where you had to answer very, very uh, specific questions. And this was back in like the mid 1990s, I would say maybe 1992, 1993, where we were, you know, kind of working our way through that process. Um, And one of the things that I would often have to do is kind of meet with a board that was comprised of other United Methodist Church pastors. And they were the ones that kind of, you know, processed my answers. They were the ones that kind of, you know, kept an eye on my uh, progress, making sure I was kind of moving along in my uh, process towards uh, ordination as an elder. And one of the questions that they asked in the uh, papers that they wanted to submit was they wanted your response to who is God? Well, part of my answer centered on God being a perfect father, a loving father. And I clearly remembered my answer not setting well with uh, several of the pastors on the board. And it was really the first time where I kind of had like this recognition that uh, anyone ever having an issue with with referring to or calling uh, God uh, the Father. And part of the issue for them centered on the fact, as I kind of came to discover in kind of talking with them and in listening to them, was that the fact that God would not only allow, but that God willed for his son to die on a cross. And their, their response to that was, what kind of a father would do that? I mean, what kind of a loving, good father would do that? And they believed that a God who allowed and, and even willed for his son to die upon a cross, they viewed that as child abuse. So to them, if God was indeed a father, he was an abusive father. And I learned from that experience that not everyone was comfortable with that title, God the Father. Now, for those, again, who are comfortable with that title, God the Father, many of them struggle with the concept of God being a good father. And I know this was true for me. When I first became a Christian, I had no problem with the title, God the Father. I think I had heard it enough growing up that I was, I was comfortable, didn't really fully know what that meant, but heard it enough in a, in a good, in a positive context that I was comfortable with that term, God the Father. But I remember the challenge of thinking of God the Father as good. 
As a matter of fact, my initial impression of God, just based on the Old Testament, that this God of the Old Testament was a very angry, full of wrath, judgment. He was a jealous God and, and often would instruct or lead or tell the nation of Israel to go and just wipe out their enemies. And oftentimes that would include women and children. And I kind of felt like the nation of Israel in Exodus 20 when Moses was giving uh, them God's commandments and the people are gathered there at the base of Mount Sinai and they look up and they see the thunder, they, they, uh, they hear the thunder, they see the lightning, they see the billow, billowing smoke uh, there on the mountain. And it says that the people of Israel, as they looked and heard that, it just says that, that, that they stood at a distance, trembling with fear. Now, verse 15, uh, the people of Israel say to Moses, this is kind of their response to what they're hearing and seeing there on the, on the mountain. They said, you speak to us, Moses. We want to hear from you and, and we will listen. But don't let God speak directly to us lest we die. I, I remember kind of as I read that thinking, I remember kind of having that feeling uh, in my initial understanding of God. God was pretty scary to me um, initially. I liked Jesus. I thought Jesus was, you know, a, a good person. He, he sounded very loving. Um, but God, especially the God of the Old Testament, for me was just a completely different story. And I think, again, if we're being, you know, completely honest, I think a lot of us as Christians have struggled with that whole concept of, if not God the Father, we certainly struggle with the concept of God being a good or a perfect father. A while back, I came across a book by Michael Phillips and it was called God, A Good Father. And he makes the following observation. He says, the least apprehended of God's triune personalities is in fact his fatherhood. Having been taken for granted, the knowing of God the Father has receded into the background behind a relationship with the Son and an intimacy with the Holy Spirit. Christians speak of walking with Jesus. Evangelicals regard salvation as based on a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Charismatics across the spectrum from mainline Protestant to Catholic give a great deal of God's activity in their lives and ministries and churches to the work of the Holy Spirit. All Christians, whatever their orientation, pray in Jesus' name. The revivals in the 1960s were called the Jesus Movement. As a matter of fact, there was just a very popular movie out uh, showcasing that. And the charismatic movement, emphasizing the exciting new works of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And what that has led to is a subtle but serious air to infiltrate our attitude towards God. And the air is this the assumption that God the Father cannot be known with the same approachability as the Son and the Holy Spirit. God's holiness prevents such knowing, a veil shrouds his face, he cannot and will not coexist with sinful man. Relationship with us was presently, um, was we presently exist is contrary to his very nature. We cannot dare presume actually to enter his solemn and holy presence, which leads to the inevitable but false conclusion. It is impossible to know the Father with intimacy or personal immediacy. 
of all the falsehoods perpetrated, perpetrated by the theologies of men, this must surely be one of the most heartbreaking to God himself. For it is his father's heart he desires us to know most of all. This is where intimacy of relationship begins. The fatherness of God provides the very foundation for both other aspects of his divine nature. Without fatherhood, there could be neither son nor spirit. The father sent both the son and the spirit to illuminate his being precisely because he can be known and he wants to be known. That is so true. But here's the thing, every generation, every culture struggles with the fatherness of God, especially the goodness of that father. I find it interesting as I was thinking about that this week that the two most known creeds among the universal church are the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And what's interesting to me is that both identify God first and foremost as Father. Look at the Apostles' Creed. It starts by saying, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. The Nicene Creed starts, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty. The first characteristic that is mentioned in both of those creeds before any other characteristic is the fatherness of God. And I think this was done to keep that specific characteristic about God front and center. They did not want that characteristic of God to get lost, demoted, or confused. Even the culture of Jesus's day struggled with the concept of the fatherness of God. You may remember when Jesus walked upon the earth, most people then believed that God was very distant, uninvolved, unapproachable, and unknowable. Among the Greeks, there were two very dominant beliefs concerning God. And one was held by those that were called the Stoics. And they believed that the gods did not have the ability to feel any emotions. And this belief came from the idea that if gods could feel emotion, then they could be hurt. They could become sad. They could become disappointed. They could experience frustration. And surely the gods cannot be affected by any feelings such as these. So they must remain emotionless, apathetic and indifferent. That was the Stoics. The second dominant belief concerning the gods was held by a group known as the Epicureans. They believed that the gods were most characterized by perfection and tranquility. The Epicureans concluded that the world was often chaotic and very much out of control. And as a result of that, the gods would surely lose their tranquility, their sense of peace, if they ever got involved in human affairs. So they believed because of that, the gods must remain distant, detached, and uninvolved. If you're familiar with even the Jews of Jesus' day, they had grown to believe that God was very distant and very uninvolved. He was definitely to be feared, but intimacy with God to the Jews of Jesus' day was a very foreign concept. In the Jewish tradition, the people felt that the very name of God, Yahweh, was so sacred and holy that no person had a right to ever speak that name out loud. 
And this kind of all just fed into their perspective of a distant, almighty God. And it seemed to be focused more on the God who created the world, the God who was judging the world with the flood. He parted the Red Sea. He brought plagues. He was powerful, but he was also just completely unapproachable and unknowable. You'll even notice today among uh, Orthodox Jewish writers that oftentimes if you're reading uh, something that they've written about God, oftentimes or, or every time what you will see is they drop the G and just have O-D. They, they, they believe the name of God is so sacred, not only should it not be spoken, but it also should not be written. And all this to say, this difficulty of not only the fatherness of God, but God as a good father has been a struggle for mankind from the time of the fall back there in the Garden of Eden right up to today. So as, as Cheryl kind of alluded there this morning, if you're here and the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about God isn't that of a good father, you're not alone. A lot of people in our culture today really struggle with the fatherness of God and especially that that father is a good God. And it's for this very reason in part that Jesus came and he came among us as a human being. And Jesus came in part to reveal to us this father, what he was really like and that God's plan was to reconcile the world unto himself through Jesus Christ. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, beginning with verse 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in relationship with Christ, he is, he becomes a new creation. The old man, the old nature has all passed away. Behold, the new nature, the new things have come. All this is from God. And I would add the Father who through Christ reconciled. Now again, that, that word reconciles is, is that he's made peace with us through the work of Christ upon the cross. That's what that word reconciliation means. So you could say that who through Christ gave peace or brought peace and it says that he reconciled to us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God the Father was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So Paul's saying Jesus came and he died upon a cross so that we could be forgiven that we could be reconciled, and that is, again, to have peace with God in our relationship with him as our heavenly father. Paul also writes in Romans 5, beginning with verse 8, he says, but again, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And then verse 10 kind of reveals the fruit of verse eight. And he said, for since our friendship with God was restored, and, and some translations will use that word reconciliation. That's what reconciliation is. It's restoring us. For since our friendship with God was reconciled or restored by the death of his son Jesus while we were still enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. 
Now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. That's what reconciliation is, is, is while we were enemies, while we were sinners, while we were lost in sin and separated from God, Jesus comes, dies upon a cross, he reconciles us to the Father and we're now friends of God. That was really the main mission. It was one of the main reasons Jesus came. Again, to reveal to us the fatherness of God and to reconcile us, to, to, to bring peace between us and our heavenly father. To make the fatherness of God known was one of the primary missions of Jesus. And you see that throughout the gospels. One such place is uh, John 14, beginning in verse one. And, and here Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be where I am. You know the way to where I am going. Doubting Thomas, his response to this was, no, we don't know, Lord. We have no idea where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus told him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father. No one can be reconciled to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the father and we will be satisfied. I love that. Show us the father and the outcome of that will be satisfaction. That, that, that's our prayer. God, show us the father. Show us your fatherliness. And out of that, we will be satisfied. And Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip? And yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me and does his work through me. Just believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe because of the work you have seen me do. Now, what's interesting in those 11 verses, Jesus mentions the Father nine times. And each time Jesus mentions the Father, he's revealing him as a, a loving Father. He's revealing him as a good Father. Now I want you to understand those words that Jesus spoke there in John 14, beginning in verse one, they were spoken at a very, very pivotal time in the life of Jesus and in the life of those disciples, especially those opening words there in verse chapter one, let not your heart be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. Now again, unfortunately, it's very easy to pick up the Bible, turn to John 14 and just begin reading there at verse one and separate that verse from the context of how Jesus uh, spoke those words. 
Now again, if you were just gonna start reading at John chapter 14 without the context, you would really miss, uh, I believe, the impact of what Jesus is saying there. Those words that Jesus shares there in John 14, 1 through 11, they were part of a much bigger dialogue and encounter that Jesus is having with his disciples. As a matter of fact, I believe to really understand and to really uh, see the profound significance of those words that Jesus spoke there in John 14, you really need to kind of back up to at least chapter 13. In chapter 13, what you find there is you find where Jesus comes and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And there comes this point where Jesus comes to Peter and wants to wash Peter's feet and Peter refuses to allow Jesus to do it. I said, I won't allow you to wash my feet. And you remember in that encounter, Jesus responds to Peter by saying, if you don't allow me to wash your feet, you have no part of me. That had to be a jolt to Peter as well as any of the other disciples who were there witnessing that interaction. And then immediately following that, you have the Last Supper where Jesus informs the disciples that one of them are gonna betray him, which just sets off this whole panic among the disciples trying to figure out which one of them would it be. And then following that, Jesus once again tells his disciples, I'm, I'm only gonna be with you a, a little while longer. And then I'm gonna go to the cross, I'm gonna be crucified, and then I am going to a place and you will not be able to follow after me. And all of this produced just anguish and grief, sadness and confusion among the disciples. And then to add insult to injury, Jesus informs Peter that he would go on to deny Jesus three times, which obviously had to be very difficult for Peter to hear those words just after the whole incident around the washing of, of his feet. So again, as you go back to chapter 13, all of this has just created an atmosphere where the disciples, they are confused, they are troubled, they're anxious, they're worried, they're feeling so overwhelmed. And it's at this point in John 14, 1, where he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. Everything leading up to this point, had created very troubled hearts in the disciples. They were very confused about what was happening, not only what was happening to Jesus, but what was gonna happen to them. What Jesus says to them there beginning in John 14, it was meant to comfort them, to settle their hearts, to give them hope, to bring them peace, to calm the storm they felt that was stirring around them. Jesus was going to leave them and he was going to a place and prepare that for them as well. And the way to this place was through his death upon a cross. And again, not only does Jesus encourage them to not let their hearts be troubled, he also tells them, you just need to trust in God, trust also in me. 
despite all they were feeling and experiencing in those moments, to trust that God had a plan, that God is gonna use all that was happening in their lives as a way to bring forth goodness. That in the midst of all that was happening, they would encounter the father heart of God and experience his goodness, much like Cheryl. Cheryl, I, I believe God used that and, and brought good out of that. And, and in that, that, that once again, Cheryl has an opportunity in the midst of, of great difficulty, in the midst of great loss. Cheryl has the same invitation. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. I've got a plan. And, and in that, part of what Cheryl encounters is the goodness, the provision of God. The same is true for us. You can take all the disappointments, frustrations, the challenges, the failures, and the mistakes that are maybe happening in your life right now. And the response of God the Father would be the same as Jesus' response to those disciples there in John 14. And again, I don't think any of us can imagine, I certainly can't, what it would be like one day to just lose everything you own in a fire. Val and Cheryl, they know that experience firsthand. As well as any of you here who have maybe faced a similar experience. And again, it would be very, very easy in a time like that to experience fear, sadness, confusion, worry, anxiety, and yet Jesus' response to Cheryl, his response to us would be identically the same. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust in him as a good, as a perfect father. Trust also in me. Jesus is essentially saying, we've got a plan to bless you and to prosper you. We've got a plan to bring you into a place of peace. We will not let you falter. We're not gonna let you stumble. We're not gonna let you fail. So again, you can, you can take your circumstances and just put all of that there in John chapter 13 as well. And Jesus' response to you would be the same as it was to his disciples. So where in your life this morning do you need to apply that statement of Jesus? What do you need to let go of this morning? And what do you just need to trust God the Father for? What is troubling your heart this morning? That you just need to trust that your heavenly Father is a loving and a good Father and that he has a plan to take care of that. Jesus goes on in verse two, there's more than enough room in my Father's house. If it were not so, would I have told you? that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Let me just make several observations here. First, God the Father is a God of more than enough. Paul declared in Ephesians 2, 4, God is rich in mercy. 
1 Corinthians 13 tells us that God's love, the agape love of God, it never fails, that it will last forever, and that it will endure through every circumstance. Exodus 34 verse 6 tells us, the the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. No matter what attribute you talk about relating to God, he always has more than enough. The same is true for the rooms in Father God's home. Let not your hearts be troubled. There is more than enough room. The second observation is this. The ultimate comfort, the ultimate peace, the ultimate goodness of God is one day we will be home with the Father. No matter how good or tough it has been here in this life, regardless of what the future holds, whether we live another 20 years or die tomorrow, whether we die of natural causes, whether we're martyred for our faith, we need to know and trust and be at peace that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us in the Father's house. And when our time comes, Jesus says, I will come and get you and I will take you so you can be where I am. That is the ultimate comfort, the ultimate peace, the ultimate promise. And again, it reveals, it shows, it demonstrates the father heart of God. It demonstrates his goodness from top to bottom, inside and out. No fear, no worry, no trial, no difficulty, no tribulation can ever rob us of our ultimate destination, that place that Jesus has gone to prepare for us in his father's home. Let me just close with this. Jesus made one thing very, very clear to his disciples, and I believe he wants that to be very clear to us here this morning as well, and it is this. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. What Jesus told Philip there in John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. It's not just true for Philip, it's true for all of us. To see Jesus is to see the Father. To hear the words of Jesus are to hear the words of our Heavenly Father. To experience Jesus is to experience the Father. And the challenge for believers today is that it's possible to know a great deal about God the Father without knowing Him personally. What is God the Father like? Who is he? What does he want with you? What does he want with me? That is the most important question, I believe, of our existence. To me, it is the universal quest. And it's for that reason Jesus came. We cannot know the Son apart from knowing the Father, and we cannot know the Father apart from knowing the Son. 
finding the answer and, and forming a proper heart's response to that answer, I believe is the ultimate journey and destiny of our lives. I have come to discover, to believe that the Jesus of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament. They are one in the same. Two separate entities, but the same exact essence. If Jesus is good, and I believe he is, then God the Father is just as good. If Jesus is loving, and I believe that he is, then God the Father is just as loving. If Jesus is gentle and meek, and I believe he is, then God the Father is just as gentle and meek. If we are able to take Jesus at his word, and I would highly recommend that we do, we will see that ultimately it is the Father we are called to worship. It is the Father whom we are called to seek. Don't, don't seek after Jesus as a way of bypassing the Father. Jesus didn't come for that. He came so that you could see and know the Father and to discover his goodness, his, his unconditional love for us, that that would then bring us into a relationship with him. It is the Father whose work we are to be about. It is the Father with whom we are to walk in close and daily intimate friendship as Jesus himself did. Jesus came to show, to demonstrate to us how to be in relationship with God the Father. And then Jesus made the way possible and he did that through his death upon the cross. I believe to have a relationship with Jesus, to walk with Jesus, but, abo to, but avoid the Father is to stop short of the very thing Jesus said was his deepest heart's desire, that we know his Father as he did. To know the goodness of God as Jesus did, to experience the love of the Father as Jesus did. For this Jesus came, for this he lived, for this he died, for this reason he rose again. For this he sent his Holy Spirit so that we could live as he lived and to know the Father as he knew the Father. Amen? And let's stand together this morning. Father, we just come to you this morning and, and as Jesus prayed, Abba, Father, Daddy. And God, this morning, you, you see all hearts. And God, you see all of the barriers that are maybe in our hearts this morning that really block us from truly walking with you as a perfect loving father. And Lord, you don't stand in judgment. You don't condemn us for those barriers. I believe that you understand that you have compassion, that you have mercy for us in those places. And that it really is your heart's desire to be able to reveal yourself to us in such a way that it would allow those barriers to be removed. 
So Father, we come to you this morning fully exposed, fully known, and fully loved and accepted by you this morning. Faults, failures, barriers, and all. And God, we just ask this morning that out of your grace, out of your mercy, out of your abundant love, that you would just continue to reveal yourself to us as that good, that loving, that perfect, that faithful father that you've always been and will forever be. And Father, I thank you, Lord, that I love that picture that, that Cheryl painted up here. We're not just a bunch of people in a big pile, but that you see us, you know us, intimately and individually. You know every detail of our life. You know more about us than we know about ourselves. And you've chosen us. You've chosen us through Christ to be in relationship with you. And that is a wonderful invitation. And so, Father, whatever barriers prevent us from walking, receiving, and just being in that place with you, I, just, I pray this morning, Father, that you would just come and again, gently, lovingly, just begin to remove those barriers in our heart. And we thank you that Jesus came and that he made a way for us to be your friend. And Father, we want to walk in the reality. We want to walk in the fullness of that friendship, of that relationship with you. And again, we just thank you for the work of the cross. We thank you for the example of Jesus, of how he lived, how he communed, how he was in relationship with you. We thank you for that example. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, which comes and again empowers, enables us, Lord, to do above and beyond all we could think, ask, or imagine. So Lord, for those things that just seem to be beyond our reach or beyond our grasp this morning, we pray that through the work of the cross, the example of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, God, that you would just be at work in our lives more and more, showing and revealing to us who you truly are, that good, that loving, that perfect Father. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.